enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. teasing an episode about the transit of Venus for ages now. Months and months and months. I'm just going to do it. Not only am I going to talk about the transit of Venus, though, and considering how many books there are in the library about it, I could easily do an entire episode about the transit of Venus. But I'm also going to address something that just recently came up in my research. Oppositions. As far as I can tell, transits and oppositions are in the same family. They both describe a planet's relation to the Sun as it is observed from Earth. Transits are when one of the inner planets, Mercury or Venus, passes between Earth's orbit and in front of the Sun. That makes sense as a name, right? We observe this transit across the face of the Sun at that point. It's like a black dot in front of that roiling, hot, bright mass of star energy. And it takes some doing to observe it without, you know, blowing your eyeballs out. It's a very weird sort of eclipse. The inner planets are too small and too close to the sun to eclipse it, but boy do they try. Oppositions are a kind of eclipse too, but for the outer planets. Incidentally, and I'm giving away a winning word in Hangman here, the straight line between the sun to the earth to a planetary body is called syzygy. That's S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Transits, historically, led to some essential information about the size of the solar system. I'll start closest to the Sun and work my way outwards. The planet Mercury passes between the Earth and the Sun about 13 times every century. The last transit of Mercury was in 2016, and the next time coming up, as of this podcast date, is in November 2019. These transits are so rare because Mercury's orbit is inclined by about 7 degrees compared to Earth's orbit, so Mercury, the Sun, and Earth don't line up very often. It happens more often than transits of Venus, though, because while Venus takes 225 days to circle the Sun, Mercury circles the Sun every 88 days, and therefore it crosses Earth's orbit every 44 days, once while it appears to be moving upwards and once while it is moving downwards. The places where Mercury's orbit intersects with Earth's orbit are called nodes. The first true, intentional observation of the transit of Mercury is accredited to Pierre Gassendi in 1631, working off predictions made by our old friend Johannes Kepler. Early astronomers had also observed this planet, however, and sought to both predict its movements and ascertain the planet's motions. A German amateur astronomer, Willibald Perkheimer, made a note of observing the transit of Mercury in 1504 in a set of astronomical tables by Johannes Regiomontanus, and Perkheimer was joined in his observations by his older friend Bernhard Walther, who had actually purchased Regio Montanus's astronomical observation instruments after the man's death in 1476. I like to imagine that nerdy estate sale, though I'm sure it's very different from how I'm picturing it. The 1400s probably had very different signage, for example. 
Walther and Perkheimer's observations were not published until a young Wittenberg professor named Georg Reticus visited their hometown of Nuremberg in 1539, years after both men had died. I don't know if you remember all the way back to episode 2 when I talked about cosmology, but Reticus was a student of Nicolaus Copernicus, and he brought Walther and Perkheimer's observations to Copernicus because Copernicus needed measurements of key planetary configurations to compute their average motions over time for his new heliocentric model of the solar system. Even just a few observations of the elusive planet Mercury were enough to help Copernicus calculate these averages. His heretical, bad-ass book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres finally published three of Walther's Mercury observations, including the transit of Mercury that Perkheimer had recorded decades earlier. Later astronomical tables, including Kepler's, still drew on these old observations to pinpoint when a transit of Mercury would take place. Gassendi's observation of the transit of Mercury in 1631 confirmed the precision of astronomical calculations. When amateur Polish astronomer Johannes Hevelius recorded another transit of Mercury three decades later, he was able to compare six sets of astronomical tables and note that two, including Kepler's, successfully predicted the event. Gassendi and his contemporaries also noted how damn small Mercury looked. It had often been confused with sunspots up until accurate enough predictions existed to pinpoint when a transit would happen, and the implications for the sheer size of the solar system, which was at the time the extent of the universe as far as astronomers were concerned, was boggling. Our good buddy, Edmund Halley, made his own observation of the transit of Mercury in 1677 when he was 20 years old, working on his bachelor's and making observations on the island of St. Helena off the southwestern coast of Africa. Remember this from the last episode? The island where Napoleon Bonaparte was imprisoned after he escaped the island of Elba and then was recaptured? Again, though, Napoleon was not there when Halley was there. He ended up on that shitty, rainy island a few decades later. Halley observed a transit of Mercury in spite of the shit weather, though, and realized a couple of things. He published a call to arms in 1716, asking scientists of all nationalities to unite in a global project to track a planetary transit. He realized that Mercury was too small to use as a good source of observation, though. Scientists would have to measure the size of the planet compared to the sun, and Mercury was too teeny. Instead, Halley called on scientists to travel to different parts of the world and measure the transit of Venus. Now, transits of Venus come in pairs, eight years apart, and then not again for over a century. Astronomer Jeremiah Horrocks had observed the transit of Venus in 1639, and the next pair of transits would be 1761 and 1769, which Halley would not live to see he would have had to make it to the age of 104. Thinking about it, it's kind of a bit of a bummer that Halley knew about so many things that happened every century or so, but he lived right smack in the middle of them. Halley's Comet, he saw it once during its 75-year period, but died before it returned. Transit of Venus, he missed both of the eight-year pairs. <sighs> kind of a bummer. Halley's 1716 essay asked scientists to measure the exact time and duration of the next transit of Venus, which he predicted would happen on June 6, 1761. By using precise measurements from these observations of the larger, closer planet, it would be possible to calculate Venus's parallax, the apparent shift of an object when viewed through two different lines of sight. This is the thing that happens if you stick your arm out with your finger sticking up and you close one eye and then the other eye and it looks like your finger moved. That's parallax. Venus's parallax would help astronomers determine how far Venus was from the Sun. 
I don't want to explain the math of this because holy shit is it complicated and holy shit do you need precision for it to work out. So just trust me. Determining parallax would pinpoint the distance of Venus to the sun and, in fact, the distance of all the planets to the sun. In the words of Mark Anderson's book, The Day the World Discovered the Sun, quote, Visionaries like Edmund Halley had in 1716, for instance, argued that the Venus transit could enable science to trace out a map of the solar system accurate to 99.8% or better. And this is people working with telescopes and their own brains with the math. No computers. There were several different parties sent all over the world for these observations. Jean-Baptiste Chappé de Roche was the only astronomer to view both transits of Venus in 1761 and 1769, though he traveled to very different places to observe each. The first transit of Venus he observed in Russia. He was one of three parties sent to view it, and one of two parties who returned. It is cold as fuck in Russia, and the observation locations were extremely remote, so one team was just never heard from again. Chappé was super vocal about his observations, so he gets most of the credit for the trip to Russia. Another party sent to observe the first transit of Venus in 1761 was a pair of Englishmen named Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. Mason and Dixon. This was their first project together, and they were paired up by the Royal Astronomy Society of London, but they would work together on a project that would later take their name, the Mason-Dixon Line, a survey of the border between Pennsylvania and Maryland. This first project of observing the transit of Venus was meant to take place in Sumatra, but their ship was attacked by the French, and they lost valuable time, so they made their observation from the Cape of Good Hope. It wasn't a super successful observation. Because of cloudy weather, the only really accurate measurement they got was actually the most important one, but they could have used a lot of other measurements to get their info correct. The most important observation to get was calculating the precise moment when the edge of Venus tapped the edge of the sun right before it left the sun's disk. They also had to get a decent measurement of the size of Venus in arc seconds. This they did not do. It was pretty advantageous that there was another transit of Venus to prepare for eight years later. This time in 1769, Chappé made his measurements from what was then called California, but what is now San Jose del Cabo, Mexico. Unfortunately, it was during a typhus epidemic that ultimately killed him and a couple of months after witnessing the June transit of Venus. We'll come back to Chappé's measurements, which were extremely good. Also observing the 1769 transit was a Hungarian Jesuit priest named Maximilian Hell, such a good name, who was accompanied by linguist and astronomer Janos Scheinovich. They traveled to Denmark to make their observations of this phenomenon. A fun side note, uh, they met up with the then King of Denmark, Christian VII, who was 19 years old at the time. Hell was super impressed by how into astronomy the king was, and totally did not pick up on the fact that Christian had some severe mental and emotional issues, probably some form of bipolar, and that he was into sadomasochism. I guess that's not really something that comes up in conversation with an ordained Jesuit priest who's just visiting your country to observe a rare astronomical phenomenon, but it was interesting that Mark Anderson thought all these quirks were worth mentioning in his book. <laughs> Another party also made observations of the transit of Venus in 1769. The team of Captain James Cook and astronomer Charles Green went to Tahiti and set up Fort Venus to house all the observational instruments they would need to record the transit of Venus accurately. Cook and Green made observations together, but separately, and got a set of measurements that did not totally line up with each other, 
which was probably due to something called the black drop effect. It sounds super badass, but it just describes an optical illusion where a planet nearing the edge of the sun appears to be connected to the edge by a black teardrop. It makes measuring the moment of second contact super hard to do with any accuracy. All of these observations of the 1769 transit of Venus were compiled by the French astronomer royal César François Cassini de Thury. This is not the same Cassini I've talked about before, Giovanni Cassini, or in French, Jean-Dominique Cassini, who was Italian and later moved to France. The Cassini I'm talking about is Giovanni Cassini's grandson. This younger Cassini was also into astronomy, and he edited Chappé's transit-related data and published it in 1772, along with his own history of the transit of Venus. He noted that the first transit in 1761 led to a mess of mismatched data, but the second was pretty great. His write-up compares the parallax figures calculated by Hell himself, the only observer to make the parallax calculations from his own data, as both Chappé and Green died before they could calculate from their transit of Venus data. He also compared French astronomer Joseph Lefrançois de Lalande, Swiss polymath Leonard Euler, French astronomy professor Jean-Guillaume Wallet, and French astronomer Alexandre Guy Pingre. I'm so sorry for all of that French. All of these five men arrived at slightly different parallaxes, but technically Wallet had the number that was most correct to the true figure. He said it was 8.76 arc seconds of parallax, and the true answer, as calculated today, is 8.794. However, Cassini arbitrarily picked a parallax number that was a round result of Lalande's numbers, 8.5 arc seconds, and Lalande was totally shitty to hell about his parallax numbers and the data and everything because they had a petty feud going on, but Cassini and Hell were not the only ones to publish on the transit of Venus data. English astronomy professor Thomas Hornsby used Chappé, Hell, and Cook and Green's data to calculate the parallax himself and created a chart of relative distance from the sun for the planets as well as their absolute distances. And he stated the distance from the Earth to the sun with 99.8% accuracy. All of his planetary distances were accurate between 99.2 and 99.6% of the true values. All of this from a couple of minutes watching Venus cross the sun. Though we now have more accurate ways of measuring distance in space, we still use transits of Mercury and Venus to gather data today. For example, during the last transit of Mercury in 2016, NASA scientist Rosemary Killen and her colleagues used the transit to study Mercury's ultra-thin atmosphere using spectroscopy readings of how much the planet's atmosphere absorbed the element sodium, which could then show them how dense the atmosphere was. There's always new things to learn about the planets. Moving to the outer planets, let's talk about oppositions. Mars actually offers a lot of opportunities for us to see opposition from Earth. It happens roughly every 26 months. Every 15 or 17 years, opposition happens close to Mars's perihelion, when it's closest to the Sun. Mars's opposition is actually coming up this summer. It'll happen on July 27, 2018. Opposition of Jupiter happens every 399 days or so. 
as the second brightest planet after Venus, observing Jupiter during opposition is a great way to get a solid look at the red spot and the four major moons of Jupiter, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Opposition of Saturn happens once a year, and Earth keeps creeping up on Saturn's orbit, with opposition happening two weeks later every year. Giovanni Cassini, the grandfather of César François Cassini de Thury, that I talked about earlier, noticed in 1675 that the single ring around Saturn was actually two rings, and this Cassini division, as it's called, should be visible during opposition. So you get to look at those rings. Opposition of Uranus is also a yearly event, but because the planet is so far away from Earth, it's just like looking at another star in the sky. You have to find a really good astronomical chart and a decent observing station away from light pollution to spot it. Neptune in opposition is straight up invisible to the naked eye. It also goes into opposition once a year, but it's still too far and too faint to see without a telescope. When any of the outer planets are in opposition, they are completely opposite to the sun. So it's like looking at a full moon, but for the planets. They are extra bright, and they rise when the sun sets and stay in the sky until the sun rises again. They also are in retrograde at this time, so they look like they're traveling backwards because of how Earth's orbit is matching with theirs. Incidentally, the opposite of an opposition is called a conjunction. This is when the Earth, Sun, and outer planet are all in a straight line, so Earth and the planet are on opposite sides of the Sun. This is obviously not a time when you can make planetary observations because it's behind the dang Sun. (laughs) And that, at last, is an episode on transits and oppositions. A fun little bonus for you there at the end. I had less to say about them because they're pretty regularly occurring in the outer planets, but I hope you enjoyed the history lesson about the mess that is the inner planets and their movement across the sun. A lot of people worked so hard to gather data on the transit of Venus so that they could map the distances in our solar system. And I think that's incredible. A global effort that Edmund Halley would have been proud of. Apart from all of the crappy infighting at the end, but... Halley was friends with Isaac Newton, so I'm sure he was used to scientific infighting. (laughs) For the next episode, I still want to look into Chuck Yeager, Stephen Hawking and his theories, or Edmund Halley, because the dude just seems to get cooler and cooler. I'm also into researching famous comets, and I swear I thought of something new the other night. Ah, well, it'll come to me. New listener Leslie sent me a very cool chart of her son Griffin's work with quasars, and I appreciated the hell out of that infographic. You can always send me fun space info if you find it. If you want to hear me talk about something else that's related to space, you can also send me an ask on my Tumblr, or you can tweet at me on Twitter at HDInTheVoid, all one word. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, because frankly, I'm not seeing an end in sight for these unreliable releases, but I still want to keep telling you space facts. You could rate and review the podcast, too, if you feel so moved. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it makes me feel like I just got a three-day weekend. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to make you feel like you're getting a three-day weekend, too. You can find my sources for this episode, music credits, a vocab list, a timeline of all the astronomers I talked about, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off. (laughs) 